Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 113 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Michelle Browning Coughlin about how to build a parent-friendly law firm. Today's podcast is sponsored by Spotlight Branding, which wants you to know that having a new website designed for your law firm doesn't have to suck. Spotlight Branding prides itself on great communication, meeting deadlines, and getting results. Text the word website to 66866 in order to receive a free website appraisal worksheet. Today's podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, which is ridiculously easy to use and packed with powerful features. Try it now at freshbooks.com slash lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. And today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists and its smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So today's interview about kind of work-life balance and parent-friendly law firms and things reminded me of a case that is currently headed to the Minnesota State Supreme Court. Um, A woman, Kathleen Riley, is licensed, I believe, in Illinois and is petitioning to waive in for admission to the Minnesota bar. She applied to the Board of Law Examiners under the theory that she had practiced in Illinois for five years or practiced law for five years, which included a federal clerkship and some other stuff. And the Minnesota Board of Law Examiners counts your 60 months, five-year credit so long as you are primarily in the practice of law and they've decided that primarily in the practice of law means 120 hours per month for each of those 60 months. Otherwise, it doesn't count. So um, full time, 40 hours a week-ish. Well, that would be like 160-ish. So it is oh, less I guess than so. that. Okay. It's closer to 30, 30. But they've decided that if you don't meet that numerical threshold, you are not primarily involved in the practice of law. Even if that's the only work that you're So doing. that is the case of this woman who worked part-time She was also a mom, and her part-time didn't always meet the 120-hour threshold over the course of those five years, though she wasn't doing anything else. Um, And so they said that she didn't meet the standards and denied her ability to wave into the Minnesota bar without having to take the bar exam. Um, And she's petitioning that, that to the state Supreme Court right now under a couple of different theories because the case also involved maternity leave and whether a gap in that counting, Hmm. all sorts of interesting stuff. But I thought the, the fact that there is kind of a pending issue in our state about kind of what it means to be a lawyer to practice law, whether full-time practice is what's required for you to consider yourself practicing law. And it's pretty clear to me, and I think to most of the people engaged in the Bar Association in Minnesota, that where our society is headed probably means that arbitrary numerical thresholds (laughs) of how many hours you bill or work is probably the wrong way to think about whether people are professionally lawyers or not. You know, it's uh, the only... I think the only legitimate purpose of these kinds of regulations is protecting consumers, right? I mean, is there anything 
beyond that that they that you could say is a legitimate reason to have this sort of regulation? That is the goal, right? So the idea is that if you've practiced for five years in another state, then you have demonstrated that you are competent as a lawyer. Yeah. And it, we're going to have an upcoming podcast dealing with military spouses, which will be interesting, um, who are lawyers, because they will have had five years of practice, but probably not all in the same state. And so they also don't get to wave in under the five-year rule in most states. It's, God, it just feels so arbitrary. And it, if you've practiced part-time for five years, are you somehow less competent than the lawyer who's practiced full-time? I'm not willing to say that in every case. I think it kind of depends. And what if you what if you practice personal injury for a year, family law for a year, criminal defense for a year, something else for a year, then you fall under the five-year rule, but you, you're no more competent than somebody who's practiced part-time in one practice area for five years. It yeah, seems or, or if you for sure practiced full-time doing med-mal for five years in one state, and then you move to a different state and want to do business law advising, you're deemed competent, yeah. even, even though you are starting from zero in the same way that anyone else would be. I mean, certainly like our licensing regime is kind of absurd at this point. <laughs> I, I like that you take the time to make fun of the way I pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you get to walk out of law school and be presumed competent, then you ought to be presumed competent for just about anything else if you've already got a law license, it feels like. One would think. Yeah. How about, like, I, I'm a big proponent of, I wish we had two rules. Uh, one is be competent, and the other one is don't lie. Sure. I mean, that, I think that covers everything. You have to set some threshold as to what those mean, but yes. Sure. I mean, we enforce 1.1 already. Yeah. Maybe then we could just do away with the raft of regulations. Probably not. Probably not like not. lawyers would never allow that to happen. Yeah. So at ABA Tech Show last week, the keynote presentation was the CEOs of Avo, Rocket Lawyer, and LegalZoom. Yep. Um, and Mark Britton from Avo was asked a question about our licensing regulatory regime. Um, the reason those three were speaking was because they're kind of the businesses testing the limits of what it means to practice law and using the internet to to provide legal services. And Mark Britton from Avo said, look, like to the extent that regulations are about ethics, about protecting people from fraud, from incompetence, those are the most important rules. And to the extent they are about protecting lawyers or regulation for regulation's sake, it's fucking bullshit. Agreed. Done. And so let's hear from Michelle on a related tangentially subject, uh, which is about how to build a parent-friendly law firm. I think you'll find it really interesting. Hi, Sam. My name is Michelle Browning Coglin, and I am an intellectual property attorney in Louisville, Kentucky. I work for a boutique firm called Cahill IP, and I love my clients. I love my practice. But what we're here to talk about today is Mothers Esquire, um, which is an organization that I founded in 2013. Um, we sort of founded as a small group on Facebook, really an informal group, and we've grown um, over over the years to an over 300 member group now. And we're focused on supporting women who are caregivers, in particular, and who are lawyers. Focused on how we can how we can better make the legal practice more accessible for women, and and focus on gender equity in the law. So, Michelle, when you and I met at the Clio conference, I think last September, October, it was just a Facebook group and you were just starting to get fired up about it. And I think you had 70 some members at the time. How big is it now? We, yes, we just crossed the threshold of 300 members in our Facebook group. And like you said, when, when this first started, I started it as just a 
kind of a mom's group on Facebook um, for uh, several of my friends, and there were just a handful of us on there. And then as the time grew, we we got up to 50, 60, 70, which really felt great. Um, and then in the fall, I had the opportunity to serve as a diversity scholar to, um, to a national conference as part of the American Bar Association and talk about what these issues are. And we really focused in on growing our group and letting people know what we were doing. We launched a website, um, started offering events, and now we just crossed 300 actually just this morning. So um, it's been kind of an explosive, exciting, and nerve-wracking growth because you want to know, like, <laughs> how can I best serve these, you know, these members? So why moms? Why not women? Um, there are a lot of great resources for women, and we feel like by supporting moms, certainly, of course, we are, you know, we are supporting the greater goal of supporting women, but we feel like that that's a piece that's not really addressed. You know, you and I have talked in the past about, well, how does this impact moms? And I've been asked that question by other people. You know, how did the legal, the gender issues in the law, how how do we know what percentage is mom? I don't know. We don't know. Um, we just don't collect statistics about that. And I think that that's part of what I felt was compelling about Mother's Esquire is that we need to better ask the questions. You know, what is it that is causing us to see a, a, an, a large number of women leave the law when we're when we're graduating, you know, almost 50 percent out of law school and we're starting at law firms at, you know, almost 50 percent. So we're almost 50-50 going in. So why is it 10 years down the road? We're down to, you know, 18, 20% of women in the law. And, you know, if you think about timing, that timing lines up almost um, almost perfectly for when many women start having children. And yet it's, I Yeah, I it can't sounds really like your hunch is basically that one of the main reasons women drop off is they have kids and somebody needs to stay home with them. And in many families, that's still the mom. Right, exactly. And I, But I cannot produce to you a a statistical report right. that explains that exactly, um, but I, I do think that's a that's a big issue. And I thought, you know what? Let's talk about this. Let's let's really be direct and talk about caregiving roles and what I call the double bind, or I don't call it that. It's been called that before. The double bind, which is the this sort of pressure to be a great worker, um, pressure to be very successful in your profession, um, and then this pressure to be very successful as a mother, a caregiver, a spouse, and how that creates a situation that can be a bit of a pressure cooker. And for many women, they find, I think, that there there's just often pressure to move out of either a type of legal profession or move out of the profession entirely in order to meet the pressure that is placed on so many moms. You know, so my, my wife is a mom, and she's a lawyer with a, a full-time aggressive job, and um, and we have kids. And so I'm going to try and resist the urge to speak for her since she's not here to speak for herself. But <laughs> Um, but I, I hear you. There, and there's just there's a lot going on there. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is, you know, we we are are very I think we parent very much as partners. But it's one of those things where I'm kind of unaware of where I make assumptions and things. Um, but what I really am aware of is I know that she carries guilt over not being around for the kids all the time uh, that yeah. I don't have because there there's no expectation that. In, there's no cultural expectation that dad is going to be around all the time. So the fact that I want to or not don't want to is kind of like my choice. But for her, there's all this expectation around what it means to be a mom and what kind of care you're supposed to give. And, and, and I know that it's, that it's there and it weighs on her. Absolutely. I mean, that's the nail on the head right there is that the cultural expectations, the, the, the personal expectations, you know, depending on how, how you grew up and what you envision for yourself as a, as a mom, 
um, as a, what you envision for yourself as a professional, as a lawyer. Um, those things can sometimes be at odds with each other, and, and there is an enormous amount of guilt around those expectations. And even sometimes I've heard, you know, women in my group talk about they get, they sometimes get negative messages from their spouse directly or from other um, family members and so, um, or other, or other friends who are moms who maybe are on a different path at this time. And, and that those, sometimes I call it death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, it's the, you get these sort of somewhat negative comments at, at work. I will tell you, I have been told before that, oh, this will be a great client for you because he won't care that you're a woman. Oh God. So, and unfortunately I've been told that more than once by more than one person. Um, and so in when I hear comments in, and oh, another example is somebody who had taken a maternity leave earlier in the year and then somebody came along later to her when she and her family were getting ready to take a short beach vacation later in the summer and said, didn't you already take a three month vacation this year? Hmm. Um, those kinds of comments, although sometimes really actually meant very well-intentioned or meant as a joke or those sorts of things. When you combine those with some of the negative comments that you hear when you're trying to be a mom, you know, parenting or trying to show up for a school fundraiser, those sorts of things. And those things start to wear on you because there is such high expectation on you in every role that you're serving in. And it can be very overwhelming. Um, And I think we just have to provide more support for women lawyers if we want to see the attrition rate of women improve in our profession. You know, one of the things that's come out in my conversations with you um, in, in our own, uh, at Lawyerist, in our conversations about um, gender inclusion, diversity, whatever, is we often make mistakes, let's say. We men make the mistake of assuming that a woman should organize the fundraiser. Um, we, didn't, we didn't really intentionally sign it to the woman. We just associate with that person the kinds of skills and talents um, that make a better fundraiser or a better par- better party planner or whatever. And somebody needs to call us out on it. But as soon as somebody does, um, we tend to get defensive. Oh, are you calling me a misogynist or um, a chauvinist? Or are you calling me a racist because of this? And while the answer could be yes, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I struggle with, I don't want to let anybody off the hook for their behavior. Um, but, I, but I also want to make sure that when we talk about these things, um, we're addressing it as a problem that needs a solution, not blame that needs to be laid at anyone's feet necessarily. Right. And, and, and you know, we, we've had a, a tough conversation before with Heather Hackman on the podcast about what it means to, you know, try and do social equity work. And I think that probably spills over here. And I, I guess I just want to ask the listeners that when we're talking about some of these things, look at them as problems that need to be solved, not accusations that need to be um, deflected or, or, you know, blame that needs to be placed. Because I think you have to be open to saying, whoa, I didn't even realize I was doing that. But hey, let's fix it. Well, and I think, Sam, it's not even just, you know, you're talking, that specific example you just used, sometimes we call that office housework. There's some good articles out there in the internet about um, office housework. And so sometimes it's not just that, a, like, a male colleague would assign that to a woman colleague. It's that a woman colleague volunteers for that because... Mm-hmm. She may also somewhat see like, oh, that's a great skill set for me. That's, you know, that's something I know how to do and may not realize that that's an opportunity for, um, that's an opportunity that's a bit of a loss for her in terms of her time, you know, in terms of being able to focus on doing those kinds of committee work or, or um, the kinds of board positions and things like that that are going to actually enhance her career and be a 
really good use of her time as opposed to falling into those sort of preset stereotypes that we that we sometimes you know, fall into just by habit, just by habit, um, let her look at that and say, oh, I don't, I'm not going to make that choice this time. I'm going to choose this other opportunity. So I think it goes both ways. And, and I don't, I do think it's not a blame thing. I think it's, um, it's an awareness and there's a great training out there on implicit bias and, and understanding, you know, are there times when, and we all do it. So it's, it's, looking at ourselves and saying, are there times when I am making an assumption, a choice, a decision about something based on something that may not be what that person has communicated to me? It may be just an assumption that I'm making. Um, And that takes some time. It takes some energy and it takes some awareness. Yeah, I think so. And one of the things that, so, you know, we all have implicit biases and uh, there's only so much we can do about them. The important thing is that we are aware of them and are willing to address them. And I, you know, reflecting on my conversations with Heather Hackman in particular, it's not about whether or not you have implicit biases. Is it, have you created a firm that is a safe environment to discuss them? And I, you know, safe spaces has gotten a lot of flack recently. And so I I want to avoid using that term, but (laughs) it it is really important for, you know, if if you've got a partner who asks uh, a woman partner to take over the party planning for the the firm's biggest clients, is she comfortable saying, "Well, hold on, um, why why should I be the one to do that? Um, right. Isn't it doesn't it seem weird that you're always asking the women partners to do those kinds of things? If she doesn't feel comfortable saying that, or if the 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 assigning partner responds in a really negative way, you've just said we can't discuss this at this firm, and you've created a a place where I think that that woman partner is probably going to want out. But the really hard part is to say, oh, wow, you're right. I didn't realize we're always assigning that to women. How can we make sure that we do this more evenly? That's a safe firm, and it's a welcoming firm to everyone. Um, and that's maybe what the target is, and maybe that's a better way to respond to implicit bias. We, we, I'm reflecting on this because we had an event like that at our conference just the other day at TBD Law, uh, which will be a couple weeks ago by the time this airs, but where, where Matt Homan uh, was sitting down in one of the groups and jumped in to explain something. And one of the women said, uh, excuse me, Matt, I'm trying to have a connection with these women here and I don't need you mansplaining. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and first of all, I was really happy that she felt comfortable saying that because that's what Matt was doing. Right. <laughs> and and not, not, in a, not in a mean way. He wasn't like trying to drown other people out. He's just an enthusiastic person like I am who, who wants to air his opinion. And Matt said, okay, like, I, I get it. Um, I didn't even realize I was doing that, but you're right. I totally just butted into your conversation. I'm sorry. There was a great story about the um, some, some um, women at the White House um, who were on the White House staff, I think, in the, in the previous administration who had had kind of got together and said, this is what we're going to do. And they had a name for it that will not come to me right now, but it was essentially that any time that a, one woman gave an idea in a meeting, another woman would sort of echo that um, oh, in order nice. to reinforce and to prevent the, the mansplaining or the manterrupting, which is another great little uh, yep. uh, term that people use, um, or, or you know, really allow that woman who originally said the idea to be able to take credit for it and be able to speak out and feel reinforced in that meeting, which I just thought was a really clever way to do it. Mm-hmm. You got to look for those ways to be accepting and open, but also um, to try and solve the problem in a way that isn't isn't confrontational necessarily, just reinforces right. it. I love that. That's a good idea. Right. 
There is a really, I think what you're talking about too, I, I sat on a diversity, um, a diversity panel presentation, um, for our local Louisville Bar Association not too long ago. And one of my co-panel members, who was an, a man from a local corporation stood up and said I, that he does trainings in this area. And he said, I have the people, particularly men who come to my trainings, look at, um, I have them list um, all the male sort of characteristics they can think of and all the quote unquote female characteristics that they can think of. And then I um, draw this line down the middle and I say, women at work have to walk down this narrow line mm-hmm. of not being too masculine and not being too feminine and finding that that balance between the two and that's a that's a difficult tightrope to walk sometimes and I added well especially in high heels so you know <laughs> I mean right it it is hard and it's hard but it's hard for men too who are trying to be sensitive about the issue and um, to know what to do I think we just have to try to like you said create a space where people can talk openly about um, about things you know one of the topics that we brought up before the call um, breastfeeding that can sometimes be a topic that you know, it's certainly very important to women, very important to, to moms. Um, and yet that can be a difficult conversation to have at work. And yet it's essential. And I think that women will leave a job if they feel like that they cannot get the support they need for, for those kinds of needs, because it's something that's very important to, to them. Um, and that's why one of the things you and I were talking about, some things firms could do. I think firms need to to be able to talk about and that women need to ask for and they need to be heard when they ask, say, I need breastfeeding accommodation. Mm-hmm. Um, just a simple, concrete thing that a firm can do to give the message that says, we want gender equity at this firm. We want gender equity in this profession. Um, recently, a very large firm started a program. I think it was Latham and Watkins um, started a breastfeeding accommodation program. Um, where they actually give women who are traveling for litigation purposes shipping um, shipping containers, and they they pay for all of the shipping. It was a really interesting program, but huh. and I said it more than just providing for that one particular mom who uses. The pro- I mean, certainly there are more than one mom, more than one mom that uses the program, but more than just providing for the women who take advantage of that program, it's the optics of that program. It is what that program communicates that we want you to be a part of our firm. We know that what you're doing can be hard, time-consuming, and challenging. You know, breastfeeding is a really big commitment, and we support you, and we appreciate that you're traveling while you have a breastfeeding baby at home and that we want to make sure that we've sent the message to all women that we want we want you to stay. Very and cool. that says a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to take a few minutes to hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, I want to talk about uh, how a firm can become more parent-friendly, more mom-friendly in particular. So let's talk about those things that a firm can do once we get back. Spotlight Branding is an internet marketing company that doesn't suck. Most solo and small firm lawyers have had at least one truly miserable experience with a web designer or internet marketing company. So if the idea of launching a new website for your law firm makes you queasy, they get it. Spotlight Branding prides itself on excellent communication with its clients, being responsive, professional, respectful, and delivering what it tells you it's going to deliver. Spotlight Branding works exclusively with solo and small law firms. Services include law firm website design, email newsletter management, social media marketing, and more, all designed to make your law practice more profitable. And Spotlight Branding is currently offering a free gift to our listeners. Simply text the word WEBSITE to 66866 and receive their free website appraisal worksheet, an easy way to evaluate your web presence, identify what's working, 
and spot opportunities to improve. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three client projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to modern life as a small firm lawyer. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks, and get paid up to four days faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBook is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, and so Michelle, you had been giving me kind of a list of uh, what it means to have a family-friendly firm, uh, what firms can do to become more parent-friendly, more mom-friendly. Uh, tell me, what what are those things? Give give us the checklist. Let's talk about each thing. And I'm sure there are going to be ones that I'm going to for- not think of, and there's other things that could be out there, but I have a list of things that I think are really important. We talked briefly about breastfeeding accommodations. I think that's such a simple fix. You know, a small room, a place where somebody can comfortably breastfeed. I mean, I have worked in firms before where, you know, you couldn't ask for a lock on your door, you know, certain simple things that were supposedly against the firm policy, and yet it would be prohibitive for somebody who was trying to breastfeed at work um, if if they couldn't be able to lock their door or go to a room that would have a locked door, for example. And the answer is not go to the bathroom. And, no, and oh, pump while while people goodness. are pooping next to you, right? Exactly. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for saying the actual graphic reason. I mean, it really is, and it's not just that. Not only is it gross to think about pumping milk where that you're going to feed to your baby in a place where people are going to the bathroom. Right. That is gross. First of all. <laughs> Second of all, let's be. And everyone should consider that gross. By the way, like if I'm the yeah. dad, I don't want my baby, you know, getting milk that has been pumped in the bathroom. <laughs> Right. I mean, everything. And and I will tell you that when I was, when I, so I went to law school when my, my oldest was, um, my oldest was about nine months old when I started law school. And then I had a baby during law school over, um, over the holiday break. And so I was either pregnant or breastfeeding most of law school. And I pumped in the bathroom the whole time until the very, very end when there was a room that was established, you know, Mm -hmm. just wasn't something that was thought about. And I didn't, I guess, know to advocate for myself in that respect. So it is something that is gross. It's also impractical. Pumps require plugs. Um, I will never forget standing in the courthouse of our state, um, of our, you know, our state capital um, with 
a pump standing literally in the doorway because it was the only place I could get access to a plug, um, trying to pump milk while people were coming in and out, literally bumping into me with the door. Well, and you need a table. You need, you need more than just a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we could talk about, there's a lot to that, but it's just an example of something that it, the message is so important that says, we want you here. We want you to stay and we know this is hard and we support you. Um, another thing, this is my super crazy radical idea that not only should firms and legal employers provide maternity leave, but paternity leave. Yeah. And the reason I say that, I, I mean, I for me, it feels self-evident, but when women take maternity leave, what do we see on a billable hour year? We see a woman who went from, you know, billing 2,000 hours a year to all of a sudden she has a 1,200-hour year or a 1,300-hour year. And, you know, then she really struggles to, to then kind of get herself back into another another billable year that looks successful. Well, I think that part of that is there is social pressure. There is a need, a physical, biological need to take a maternity leave um, for women. And yet, why isn't there a similar need for a father to bond with their baby, a father to support his spouse um, while she's healing and recovering from this, you know, I think that if men would, if we were sending the message that men should also take a paternity leave when their children are born, um, we know from research that it helps promote bonding when fathers stay home more with their babies when they're first born. It helps them feel more confident that they're going to be able to take on, you know, the some of the tasks of of parenting right from the get-go, but it also prevents women from being the ones who are stigmatized and penalized for their need to take a leave. Well, and I, part of what what you said a moment ago is like this idea that um, fathers are somehow the less competent parent just drives me nuts. Um, right. A friend of mine just posted on Facebook, you know, uh, mom's sick, so I fed the kids hot dogs and I patted myself on the back and I'm just like, oh, like, come on. Like, yeah. They, I, I don't expect a reward for feeding my kids cold hot dogs and keeping them alive when my wife is gone. I'm my wife is a lawyer; she travels a lot. I'm responsible for the kids a lot. We I don't keeping them alive is not the problem. Having fun and bonding and and doing family things is what we do. Um, right. You know, sometimes we order pizza and watch movies, but whatever. <laughs> right. So does so does mom. Mom orders right. pizza and watches totally. movies. I mean, believe me, I do that too. So I think it's we have to send a message from the beginning, and this is clearly bigger than law. It's a societal issue, but but law firms are in a position to be able to say we're offering leave for both parents, and here's a great strategy that a lot of parents use. So perhaps dad doesn't stay home for the entire first stage. Let's call it twelve weeks. I mean. We can get into that other debate another time, but let's call it 12 weeks. So let's say dad stays home for the first three weeks, goes back to work for a period of time. Mom, let's say mom's also a lawyer. Mom at 12 weeks goes back to work. Dad takes six more weeks off or eight more weeks off or whatever it ends up being. And so that at that time when I can tell you when I have to travel for work or when I have something going on and I know that my husband, who is a school teacher, by the way, when I know that my husband has taken the day off um, to be with the kids and he's home when I have to be away, there's a sense of relief. Like I know that he's taking care of them. I know he's got it. I know if somebody's sick that he's going to, you know, he's got it covered. And so this idea that when mom is going back to work, that dad is home, then she feels like she can rely on him. I mean, I just think there are a million benefits to that. So that's a great strategy for people to use. Well, and people who are listening who don't have kids probably don't realize just to what 
just a deep extent, so much of our society is built up around the idea that one parent, probably the mom, will be staying home with the kids. Like, why is there summer break? Neither of us is home during the summers. Why does school get out at 2.15? Neither of us gets to get out of work at 2.15. I mean, like, just so much about it. it. It's a constant scheduling struggle to figure out how both of us can have demanding full-time jobs. I mean, in fairness, I work for lawyers. I, you know, it's not all that stressful. <laughs> but, like, I, I have a lot of flexibility built into my job. My wife has less. But right. everything about my kids' world and the expectations about how we're going to be able to juggle it is built on the expectation that either we're supremely flexible or that one of us is going to be able to be home at pretty much, you know, at any time that we need them to. Such an important point. And, you know, keep in mind, we're talking about lawyers here. We're talking about women lawyers and mom lawyers and dad lawyers. We're talking about people who generally, that while we may not have flexibility in terms of the number of hours that have to get produced in a day, we probably have a lot more flexibility than people who are working in, sure, you know, a yeah. 7.30 to 4.30 job or, a, you know, or a, a different kind of a, a job that might not be in the same professional sector. Um, so some of this is, you know, there's a little bit of privilege built into this conversation oh, too, yeah, of course. but, um, you know, I, it is so true. There is a book by, unfin- by Anne-Marie Slaughter called Unfinished Business that I've just recently um, finished reading again. And I think it just lays out these kinds of issues is that so much is built around this idea that there's going to be a stay-at-home parent or there's always going to be a grandparent nearby who's capable of helping and, you know, able and still healthy enough to do so. I think that that's a huge issue. And we talked about this whole issue of office housework. There's a whole economy built on parental volunteering. And I look at my kid's school and there's um, which is a wonderful school. I mean, it's terrific. Um, but there's, you know, three volunteers every single day that go in just to help with lunch, never yeah. mind all the other volunteer work. That, there's a whole, um, you know, economy built around this this idea um, of unpaid labor, and it often falls on the shoulder of a mom. So you uh, alluded briefly to the need to, in the maternity or paternity year, uh, to for firms to be flexible. But I wonder if, I mean, as we were just discussing, essentially everything about my life, my availability, <laughs> my my uh, ability to pay attention throughout the day changed when I had kids. And it, and it, I wonder, um, is flexibility overall just something that needs to change if companies want people to work for them who have children? I, yes. I mean, the answer is yes, it does. It has to change. I went to this uh, seminar in Miami the other day um, where the one of the the women that was giving the presentation said, you know, it was um, how to be more productive. And she said, always turn off your phone when you get to, when you get to work, your, your cell phone, and don't check it until the end of the day. And I turned to the person next to me. I said, okay, I can never do that. Right. <laughs> I'm a mother. <laughs> I'm going to get a call from a sick kid or, you know, a note about, you know, my one kid who's got a broken ankle right now. You know, there's, there's just no way. So we have to think about flexibility in all jobs. And I think that law firms and legal employers have a great opportunity here. We have a metric that's built in that says you were productive. You know, there are ways to you, say... Billable hours, you mean, if, if that's yeah, how the firm Yeah, billable does hours. Yeah. Right. I mean, assuming that's how they do it or, or work product produced or, you know, there are metrics that fit very neatly and nicely within the law that says, hey, that person was very productive. They did what they needed to do this day. Um, we do not have to see your face 
to know that you were productive. So I have, um, there's a member of our group right now who is fantastic and she works remotely and has for several years. Um, she worked, you know, for her firm, she just works remotely. They don't see her face to face and yet she's one of their partners. She's very successful. Um, it's, there's too much technology today for us to not be taking advantage of it, um, to make, it more accessible for women to stay in a, our profession. Well, and I suppose another part of it might be, I mean, depending on what firm you work for, I mean, let's face it, most people don't need to make a full lawyer's salary, and maybe they're perfectly happy making half of that salary, and they want to put in about half the effort. It, you know, it seems to me that part-time is kind of a joke at most uh, law firms, uh, medium to large firms anyway. At small firms, right. maybe that's less so, but um, I think there are a lot of rewards to be found when you provide ways for people to participate in the company or the firm when uh, even if they can't participate fully. Um, you know, back, back when I had my own firm, uh, the woman who answered my phones was a highly skilled legal assistant who couldn't find a job at a big firm that let her do what she wanted to do, which was stay at home until her kids were both in school. And I said, well, hell, I'll, I'll set you up to answer my phone from your house uh, you can do that all day if you want. Uh, you can sit down and answer the phone when you want. You can pick it up and return phone calls. Um, that all sounds fantastic. And I got one of the best legal assistants that I've ever seen um, because nobody else was willing to hire her, and that just seemed dumb to me. Precisely. I, I mean, there is no reason why we cannot make things more flexible other than that there are rigid rules made by people who, frankly, don't have to they haven't had to parent. Mm -hmm. They haven't had to be the hands, or I should say, they haven't had to be the hands-on parent, perhaps. Um, and so I think that, um, like you're saying, there there's so many flexibility options that I don't think firms even consider. I, I will tell you that I know a personal I know a personal story about someone who went to um, a firm reduced a, a request a reduced hour um, position and was told by multiple parties, quote unquote. Don't do it. You will be considered a second-class lawyer. The moment you ask. The moment they asked. Yeah. And that then when they did eventually decide to go ahead and, and go to a reduced hour schedule, that they ended up getting their billable hour and their pay level did not meet. Right. As in the billable hour was, like say, let's say, 85%, um, but the pay was 75%. Hmm. I know of other people who've gone in and who've requested a, a, a different schedule and have been thrilled with it. So I think it's just so firm by firm. It's not, there's nothing consistent, but there is still somewhat an overriding thought that a reduced hour lawyer um, cannot be a partner can't make partner can't be considered full time you know can't be considered on full track which is just another way that it it's having kids is really not unless one person is going to spend all of their time you know being the worker and the other person is going to be the care, primary caregiver that doesn't really work out which kind of reminds me of you asked me to 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 tell this story which um I told you when we first met and um it was kind of of a revelation I was having at that moment when we were sitting and chatting and it was um you know when I my, my wife has always had a good, solid job as a lawyer. Um, I guess in the beginning she had she bounced around a little bit like many of us did, but she's for a long time, she's had a really good, solid job. And, and she has always been the one making the money, bringing home the health benefits to allow me to try and build something bigger. And so for a long time, I, I just, I didn't really think about it. I just put a lot of work into my own firm 
uh, even though it took a little while before I was able to bring in any money, much less, you know, anything equivalent to what my wife was making. And I just sort of assumed that we were going to support me uh, so that I could succeed at this thing. Uh, and then it was, then at, at some point we kind of decided it was her turn. And I, and I, I sort of realized like I, that she had been doing so much, even though she was also the primary breadwinner in our family, we were just behaving like inevitably I would be the primary breadwinner. And so she was going to put in the effort. And at some point we flipped it and, uh, and I kind of all of a sudden dawned on me that that was super unfair and I can't believe I did that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and I don't think it's super unfair. I think it's that there, I think that happens all the time. And I think that women have expectations of themselves and men have expectations of themselves about what we're supposed to do and what our roles are supposed to be. And that when you are put in that position, you suddenly are kind of confronted with that. I, I will tell you my, my personal story is that I'm married to a school teacher. I, you know, he really encouraged me to go to law school. I started law school with a nine month old. You know, he was working two jobs while I was going to law school. And then when I got out, I started working and he, you know, then he started doing more caregiving and he's always done the lion's share of the housework. Mm -hmm. And I've, raised in Southern Kentucky, and I just felt such enormous guilt about this because there was just this assumption in my mind that I was supposed to be the one doing these. That these he was doing your job, not that. That he's doing yeah. my job. I, I Yes, exactly. And I even had this really, this one moment where I'm standing on a ladder with a drill, like drilling <laughs> curtain rods in, and he's behind me at the kitchen washing the dishes. And I thought to myself, what kind of crazy upside down world am I living in here? And yet this is us and this is what works for us. He's frankly much better at being more organized and more, you know, tidy than I am. It's not my strength. Um, and he, and not only that, he does it to support me because he believes in me. I believe in my career, and he wanted me to have the opportunity to go to law school and be a lawyer. And he knew that that was going to take um, him stepping up to the plate in ways that maybe you know other guys that he knew maybe wouldn't have, but he's always done it. But it's it's hard. It's confronting your own personal assumptions about who you are and who your spouse is and what you're quote unquote supposed to do. But it's challenging for, for all of us. I mean, and I do this work and I still think about it and worry about it. Sure. So we've talked about um, paid paternity leave for, is important, flexible yes. working arrangements, breastfeeding accommodations. Um, what are some of the other things that firms can, uh, making sure that women aren't given all the office housework. Right. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about, um, sort of the importance of environment and culture at the firm and, and making sure that may maybe checking implicit biases and then doing training around them, I think is, is going mm -hmm. to be part of it. What, what else should firms be paying attention to as they try to become a, a family friendly firm? Well, I have a couple of other things that I'll, I'll sort of go in rapid fire succession here and that, um, and then we can come back to them. So I think we talked about that implicit bias piece for the comp, like comp committees, recruiting committees, um, your, your management committees. But I think it would be also not only, not only is it important to do implicit bias training, but to look at those committees and take a hard look at them and say, what kind of gender diversity do we have here in our management committee? Do we have a management committee and a compensation committee that is 99% male. Um, do we have a, um, do we have any representatives of care of, of moms on any of these committees? 
um, you know, somebody who's going to bring that perspective to the plate for us in terms of looking at our policies, our procedures, how we're compensating people. Um, I think firms can step back and really take a hard look at that and say, do we feel like that we have adequate representation, um, not only of gender, I mean, let's get it all at one time, racial, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, and so on, but really take a hard look at your committees and make sure that you are um, being representative of your firm in such a way that you can produce policies and procedures that are going to help you retain that talent that you've worked so hard to recruit. Because I, I suppose you can have a committee made up of three white dudes with who you know who where their their wife either stays home or they're unmarried or whatever, and you may think, well, I'll just ask the moms at the firm what they need, but that doesn't really work, right? You you actually need to be aware of what their needs are so that you can bring them up without. Um, because, because if you ask the moms what they need, they may not be sure that it's a safe place for them to bring up all of their needs. Right. They may not be fully aware of them because it hasn't, they haven't really been in a position to consider them before. And it's not really fair to put all the burden on them to, to make demands. Uh, and, and so even if your intentions are ent- entirely good and pure, it's probably just not going to work out that way. You're not going to be able to create the environment you want. With by just saying, tell us what you need. I think I think that's very true because it, it does put a lot of pressure on a, on, on a woman to be feel as if she's the spokesperson for all moms in the entire firm who've ever come before or after. And I will tell you that I hear that story over and over again. I was the first mom in my firm to have a baby, so I had to write my own maternity policy. That I mean, I hear that story over and over again. And so I think that um, having somewhere along the line, some representation, I think, helps. And I think along along those lines, I don't think it's enough to say, oh, well, we started a women, we've started a women's group in our firm. Unless that women's group actually has a seat at the policy table, we're really, you've set up an echo chamber. And, and also, I find women lawyers groups in firms, sometimes they accidentally slip into that office housework role themselves. And in meaning that, and what I mean by that is that that sometimes they decide that the women lawyers group should be dedicated to doing pro bono work or um, or volunteer work in the community, which is fantastic, right? 100% support pro bono work, 100% support community work. Um, but if that is the sole purpose of that women lawyers group, we've again created this group that is is not able to effectively advocate for change for women for the whole firm. And and so I think when we have these women lawyers groups, let's really give them the opportunity to, to have a seat at the table. So that's another thing that I think firms can do. And, and if you don't mind, I'll go to an, another one. Because no, I think away. this one I think is really important and probably ranks up there with paternity leave in my mind. And that firms really, really need to take the long, the long game when it comes to women lawyers who are going on maternity leave, and if they have male lawyers who have maternity leave, same there. Instead of penalizing women who've had really great hour, billable hours for years, and all of a sudden they have a maternity leave, and we all know if you have kids, you know, you go on maternity leave, you're out for, let's say, three months, you come back, well, a month later you've got a sick child, so you're out again, and then, you know, a month later you've got this other thing that comes up, and then you've got doctor's appointments, and then you've got your doctor's appointments, and then you know, it just kind of, then the daycare closes unexpectedly. Um, there's always going to be issues in that transition in the first year or so. Um, and or, I think looking at, <laughs> or, or seven, or in my case, 12, yeah. um, you know, and so, um, which we should say as an aside that I had to reschedule my talk with you because I ended up at the last <laughs> second having to take my daughter to the orthopedist with a broken ankle. So um, this is life. Uh, but I think 
firms really we recruit really hard. We've got these great, talented women coming out of law school. You invest. It, it, let's talk about this from an economic perspective. If you are at the first few years of practice, we know that you're a little upside down in your investment in all your attorneys, right? So they are, they're very good. They're very smart. They're very talented. And in the long run, they're going to be very productive, very profitable partners for your firm. In the first few years, maybe not so much. Um, but if we do all that investment in those first few years, and then a woman now is, say, 29, 30, and decides to take a maternity leave, and then all of a sudden, we take all of that investment and we just wipe it aside because she doesn't hit a billable hour a year for that year, um, or she's not as productive as she was before she had a maternity leave, we're, we're really discounting what's going to happen five and six years from now when she's had the opportunity to continue to practice and maybe at a slower pace or maybe not. It depends on her and her, what kind of support system she has. But if we penalize her so much in those five years or so when she's got young babies at home and she's had maternity leave that she says, never mind, I, I, I'm going to go do something else, you've lost all that investment that you made on the front end. And then you've also, more importantly, lost that investment of her when she's, you know, 45 and on when she's totally focused on this and she's going to be an excellent partner because, you know, she's going to have varied and rich life experiences. She's going to have served on the PTA and have met people, you know, you know, who knows what she's going to bring to the table. And, and let's be clear, moms are capable of getting more work done than just about anybody else on the planet. So when she's able to devote more of that to your firm, you want that. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. And I mean, and I think we want engaged moms and engaged dads um, at our workplaces because they do bring a, you know, I mean, I get client referrals through through people that go to school with my kids. I get, you know, I get, I get the opportunity to think about things differently, to approach problems differently because of my life experience. And I think to, to not Keep that investment that you've made in a woman just because she has a couple or three years of billable hour blips associated with her maternity leave is really looking very short term and not considering um, what the firm's going to reap if they if they hang in there and and they don't make. Here's an example of a system where that penalizes women where you publish hours. And so a woman who's been cranking along, you know, she's a top-notch law student, she was a top-notch associate, and she's been cranking out billable hours, and then she hits that maternity leave, and then all of a sudden you're publishing these hours weekly that just show her slipping further and further and further behind. That does something to your ego when you're used to being a real a superstar, and I think those are things that there's there's ways to work around that that don't have to create this even a mental roadblock, if not if not a true stumbling roadblock for women who are, um, you know, trying to manage maternity leave and their profession at the same time. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of trying to find win-wins uh, when it comes to anything. Uh, but often when you're trying to control for diversity or inclusion, uh, when you're trying to make sure that your, your firm is friendly to disabled clients and lawyers or women lawyers or mom lawyers, one of the best things to, I think one of the first things to look for is um, things that are not just going to make it better for moms, but everyone. And that toxic environment of competition in publishing hours and fostering competition among associates probably isn't healthy for anyone. Agreed. <laughs> um, and so getting rid of that, getting rid of that may actually just make your firm a better place and a more welcoming place to work for the best candidates, period. And so, you know, breastfeeding rooms obviously only applies to nursing mothers, but uh, but 
to the extent you can find win-wins that just improve your firm across the board, that, that there should be no pushback on that. That should be that should be no-brainers that you ought to just do. Uh, right. So. I totally agree. I mean, the thing you're talking about, it, but there may be people who don't want to work um, 2,400 billable hours in a year. There may be people who want – that's not going to just be your moms. Don't be surprised when it's your dads yep. um, as well. And I think we also have – so we have to be aware of the bias that might – go around that for dads as well and look at how can we reduce that? How can we make these kinds of more flexible, livable arrangements accessible, not just for moms, but for dads, for everybody to make the long-term um, satisfaction in this profession? You know, I, I think it's going to be just what you said, which is a win-win. And, you know, you at the, at the very, at the big end of the profession, uh, now you've got uh, those decisions about no, we're gonna. We really think it's important to foster competition among ours. If those are the kinds of decisions that make women decide, you know, this firm maybe isn't for me. Now we're looking at Microsoft and and Hewlett Packard are going. Yeah, your firm is way too white and dude for for us. So we're not gonna give you our work anymore. So um, those those kinds of decisions may start to have repercussions on the other end. On the smaller end of things. Uh, maybe you just realize that people who walk into your office don't feel very welcome there because it's all a bunch of old white dudes. Um, That's a and, great. And as somebody who will eventually be an old white dude, I don't want that to happen in my company either. So. I mean, such a great point. I think you probably saw the letter that went out and became public that Hewlett Packard, Hewlett Packard yeah. General Counsel sent out saying, listen, if you don't have enough diversity on our client matters, then we are going to, um, we're, I think it was you're going to cut your rates and potentially we're not going to use you in the future for certain matters, mm-hmm. um, if I recall correctly. So that kind of pressure, I do think, I think the pressure on this is going to come from a lot of different um, directions. And I hope it also comes just from internally of looking at, we want to have whether it's economic or, or satisfaction rates or whatever, however firms want to look at it internally to say in the long term, long term, we want to be a successful firm. And the way we're going to do that is by number one, reaping the benefit of the investment that we've put into our young attorneys, even if that means there's a few years where we're, um, you know, we have a little bit of up and down or around billable hours, but also in the long term, we have people who are satisfied and loyal to our firm and love working here and they want to stay with us. So I think I, I hope all those directions, all all those different pressures come all together at once and we see some big changes because we haven't seen um, change in gender and in, in the gender equity attrition rates and so on of women in this profession in, in quite a few years. I mean, we're seeing some actually measures that are going the wrong way. So I, I hope all those pressures do come together to, to make some changes soon. Michelle, where can people join Mothers Esquire if they want to? So glad you asked. So we have a, a, a new website that we're working really hard on. It's at www.mothersesquire.com. Um, we have a supporter membership, which is a free membership that allows you to get info on our um, what we're doing, our events. Um, we just had a great event about solo and small firm practice for the mom lawyer. Like, what are some of the advantages and challenges of that? So we'll have some continued events Um and uh, information. So if they log on as a supporter member, you can get info about that. We also do have a paid membership, $25 annually. Um, you can log on and sign up as that. And then you'll be part of our, our, our database and our network. And that way we also try to do referrals and um, support each other through, through those kinds of things through our website. So love for anybody to join. We do have a public Facebook page as well as our private Facebook group. And we have a Twitter account. So you can follow us a bunch of places. Fantastic. And we'll include all those links in the show notes. Thanks for being with us so much today, Michelle. Thanks, Sam. 
Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and the Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice. 